The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Money laundering tarnishes Scandinavian banks' good image. And why are shares in car makers hitting a ditch? These are the questions we'll be tackling on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among breaking news columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and with me in London is our co-host, Swaha Patanayak. Hi, Swaha. Hello, Anthony. What is going on in Scandinavia? The banks of the Nordic regions are supposed to be the best of the bunch in the industry. They have high returns, low costs, exceptionally high capital to keep regulators happy. They're even meant to be really good at uh, seeing off fintech players and doing it all themselves. And yet over the summer, a big scandal brewed first at Danske Bank, and that now may, I I stress may, Uh, be spreading to other banks in the region. To come to talk to us about this in London, I've got uh, both Chris Thompson and Amy Donnellan on the phone, two of our columnists here. Let's start with you, Chris. Just just since Viewsroom was on hiatus over the summer, tell us what came out and and what the big problems were uh, at Danske Bank. So the problem at Danske started a while ago when a whistleblower alerted management, allegedly, to their branch in the Baltic state of Estonia laundering tens of millions in suspicious payments. Eventually the bank was forced into doing an internal report and a couple of months ago that revealed that in fact the Estonia branch of Danske had been handling up to 200 billion euros in suspicious payments, a lot of it from Russia. That forced the CEO to eventually resign and forced Denmark's largest bank by assets into cancelling its share buyback. I mean, this, this, is, this is astounding. That's a, that's a huge amount for, OK, the biggest bank in Denmark, but it's a relatively small bank. And you think, you know, given, given all this operational soundness that, this, that the banks in this region are meant to have, not to be able to spot this is amazing. And they even had some people saying before, and I didn't Deutsche Bank and others refuse to do certain business with them, saying we can't, we can't see how these people are the best people to be clearing money for? Yes, other banks did spot the problem. The, the, the problem of the 200 billion was spread out over a number of years, seven to eight years, ending in, in about 2013. And correspondent banks such as Deutsche Bank and JP Morgan, who lent Danske Bank dollars, saw the problem in Estonia and actually threatened to stop doing business with them or did stop doing business with them. So when management claimed that it was doing all it could to try and manage this problem, uh, it clearly wasn't doing enough, according to its correspondent banks, to stop the flow of money coming in from Russia. Um, At the same time, you know, this hasn't been a massive issue until the US Department of Justice has got involved. And that's only happened recently. The US Department of Justice matters because they can essentially sever your supply of dollars without which almost any bank, and certainly Danske Bank, would be technically insolvent because it needs access to dollars for its clients. The the US authorities did this to a much smaller Latvian bank earlier this year after it was accused of violating uh, trade sanctions uh, and doing business with North Korea. 
Right, I mean, we have, of course, examples on the other side as well. Was it BNP Paribas a couple of years ago, uh, which had to um, shut down certain operations in the in um, in dollars, but found another way around it and was allowed to by the Department of Justice, I suppose, because you know the last thing that the, the authorities generally want to do is to be seen to be um, killing a bank for something that is not seen to be as big an issue as maybe the entirety of the bank itself should should demand. Although we can question whether whether that should be the case in some instances. So you know, I think it can go both ways with the Department of Justice. But this week, of course, we also had some news coming out from Bill Brower, who who was involved in um, in some of the Danske Bank stuff. One of, uh, He's a he's a hedge fund manager or an investigator of some description, right? And he's, he he has now come up with with uh, claims that uh, another bank in the region is in trouble. What's what's all that about? So lately, the Danske case has developed somewhat. It's basically spread to other banks, including uh, Swedbank, a Swedish bank, which also has business in the Baltics, but also uh, Nordea, which is which is the Scandinavian region's only globally systemic bank and and the region's largest bank by assets. So there's this American investor, Bill Brower. And uh, long ago, uh, he was managing funds uh, in Russia. And he had his Russian point man there uh, killed by uh, the authorities or gangsters. It's not quite sure which. But Browder had now alleges that Danske Bank was handling payments that were coming from these very same gangsters who killed his point man in Russia. And and we're not talking peanuts. Uh, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars spread between Nordea accounts uh, in in Sweden and Finland. And so uh, Brower has uh, filed a complaint to the Swedish and the Finnish authorities. Now, Nordea, for they, their part, uh, deny this very strongly and say they're very confident in the robustness of their anti-money laundering control systems. So, Amy, let's, let's bring you here because you, you actually listened into um, the bank's third quarter earnings on Wednesday morning where, um, unsurprisingly, this report came up. Yep. Um, how did the, the CEO react to questions about this? Well, it was interesting because uh, they didn't have the greatest, Nordea didn't have the greatest third quarter results anyway. They missed analyst expectations. So their shares were down a little bit anyway. And they had released a presentation where they had given a few bullet points on their views on this investigation. And as um, they they basically were very defensive, very strong. The only question um, Kasper von Koskel, who's the CEO, uh, accepted was from a Reuters journalist who asked about this very topic and he was extremely defensive. Um, his tone was um, quite strong, and he just said that there was nothing new in these allegations. They are very strong on money laundering controls, um, and that they work with authorities very well. Um, so by no means were they kind of accepting any kind of blame mm. or any idea that they were involved in these in these suspicious transactions. Right, but I mean, you wouldn't, unless they had something they definitely had to admit, you wouldn't accept, expect him to say otherwise. They'll say, yeah, but our controls are lax, and we don't like regulators. Um, and we don't like working with them. Um, but but what happened in the wake of this? I mean, did, did did shareholders buy this? Do you think, Chris? Well, I think I think for the moment, shareholders have largely bought Nordea's response that they haven't done anything wrong. I mean, if you compare the share price decline for them, uh, you know, over the past couple of weeks or so since since these allegations have spread, and and you're talking about kind of single digit percent, which is difficult to separate out given that they 
uh, underperformed uh, third quarter expectations, which came out on Wednesday. Uh, compare that to Danske, uh, their share price is, has nearly halved since the uh, the allegations of uh, money laundering came out with with substantially more evidence than is the case for Nordea. So, so I think I think for the moment, uh, Nordea has managed to. Uh, as it were, stem the contagion effects from Danska, um, but you know it's 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 likely to spread. Yeah, I've got to say, uh, as I think we discussed offline, I, I sometimes I look at this and it reminds me ever so slightly of the uh, of the um, the Volkswagen diesel scandal, where you you just expect every single other CEO uh, running a similar business would be calling everyone around in the business saying. Did we do this? Are we sure we did didn't do this? How can you how can you uh, make sure that we didn't do this? Are our, uh, all of our um, business units up to snuff on this? Um, but you, you can never tell, and that, that's I suppose what's going to weigh on some of these bank shares for a while. So the problem is is you can never quite tell if banks actually have a handle on this. The amounts that we're talking two hundred billion from 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 Danske potentially in in suspicious payments. Um, and, uh, and 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 even more than that, uh, in the case of Nordea, I mean, the, we're talking volumes which clearly spread to other banks. For example, uh, a lot of the Danske payments were allegedly made uh, to companies, uh, shell companies registered in the UK. So, so it's not outlandish to assume that either UK banks were involved or other banks were involved in in perhaps taking money in and out uh, of the UK. Um, but we're definitely talking. Uh, amounts uh, that have the potential to infect, as it were, other parts of the Eurozone banking system. And this is a problem because, you know, Eurozone regulators, they don't actually have, incredibly, a kind of central regulator for anti-money laundering. It's all devolved to local authorities. And a lot of those local authorities, particularly in the Baltic states, particularly in places like Malta or Cyprus, have historically either not had the capacity to follow up uh, money laundering concerns at their local banks, or, or they've frankly been unwilling, according to uh, authorities in Frankfurt, uh, not least because local politicians frequently have links with local banks. Well, look, this is a fascinating topic. I'm sure um, if anything else comes of it, we'll be back on talking soon. So again, Chris, Amy, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for that, Anthony. Why don't we move now over to auto? So you're our resident autos expert, usually based in New York. We've also got with us Liam Proud, who um, covers all things autos here in Europe. Hi, both. Hi, Liam. Right. Let's start with actually what's been going on and why it's been going on. We've had a really bad year so far this year. Share prices are down in the sector from companies like Honda, General Motors, even the luxury ones like Daimler. Can you give us an idea, Liam, about what the scale of the share price declines have been and why we've seen such declines? So it it really is across the board in terms of the decline that we've seen. I mean, on a kind of industry level, and the way you'd usually look at this is have a kind of industry index. So the Thomson Reuters um, autos and auto parts index is down a, by more than a fifth this year, the other day, when we wrote about it. Um, and essentially, there's a kind of cocktail of things that are that are brewing, um, and it's, it's, it's always difficult to second guess what investors are thinking, but front of mind is a perception that there's a kind of demand cycle which may be peaking at the moment. We've seen sales kind of flatlining in Europe and America for a while. And then the most recent kind of problem is that perhaps people aren't going to buy as many cars in China soon as people initially thought. 
Um, I mean, the longer term problems is that have always been there, which has been why the sector has been so weak for a few years, is that you have electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles, and people aren't really sure whether the kind of the legacy car makers, these people that have been making cars for a century or so, whether they're going to really have the same kind of place in the industry in a decade's time or so. And that's really caused people to flee. What do you think? Well, yeah, I, th I think you're right. But the, the thing that always stands out with me, though, is, is General Motors. General Motors now is seen as being one of the front runners for getting autonomous and electric vehicles up and running, along with you know, maybe Tesla. I mean, there's a lot of questions about Tesla. Um, but you know, Tesla gets the benefit of the doubt of being a growing company, even though there's lots of questions about its earnings, but a growing company that is at the forefront of the space. But General Motors is saying that we'll have, we'll have autonomous taxis, uh, fleets of taxis on the streets as early as 2019. So you think, okay, well, that should work through into your share price, right? But it's down like 20% this year. It's actually trading just below its IPO price of 2010. Yep. Um, even though it's managed to, to crystallize a lot of value by selling stakes to SoftBank and others in its autonomous unit recently. So really, that, I mean, what Liam's saying is critical. Even all these issues we've got about this, the short to medium term is overriding any kind of progress that any of these um, so-called legacy or traditional automakers is making anywhere else. And I presume you have a, added to this potential sort of toxic cocktail. You've got issues that in geopolitics, like trade wars, which have started playing into this industry as well. Yeah, I think that's certainly played into, and Liam, you can certainly discuss this, the, the German automakers, especially earlier this year. That's one reason why I think Daimler's the second worst performer this year, right, with 29% yeah. down, whereas Ford is the worst at 31%. But I mean, trade is one of the big, big things that's still up in the air about what's going to happen. Even though a lot of NAFTA has now been sorted out in North America, what happens with China? She said it's yeah. the biggest and growing market and the best growing market or should be over the next few years. And the Germ for the Germans in particular, and you know, we're really talking about BMW and Daimler and to a slightly lesser extent Volkswagen here. Um, there is a kind of roaring uh, trade that they do in selling European made cars in America um, and also selling American made cars in China. You'd be surprised how, how often these kind of things go across the to the other side of the world. So, you know, you've had rising tariffs between China and America, and there is a prospect which Trump has threatened to go ahead with a kind of tariff on European-made cars in America. And that would be totally disastrous for the German guys. It would basically be impossible for them to profitably sell a lot of their models in America that are quite popular there. So that's also had a huge effect. Okay. Having said that, we all three of us are sounding very negative, but some people who are claim to have like the smarts when it comes to investing don't feel so gloomy about the whole of the sector. Um, Anthony, do you want to give us a little more um, insight? On yeah, what's I mean, going the, on? The, the main one is, is, is KKR, the, the private equity firm, which earlier this week uh, finally settled a deal that's been out there for a while to buy um, a supplier uh, owned by Fiat Chrysler. And they're going to mesh it together with another one of the suppliers they bought a couple of years ago in, in Japan. Um, and they're paying, what was it, Liam, you, you looked at this as well, it was 16 times next yeah. year's estimated earnings? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was about, <coughs> the way to think about it is that the valuation was about double what the obvious peers, the publicly listed kind of stock market traded peers of this um, supplier trade at. So essentially what KKR is saying is coming along and saying, we think this is worth an awful lot more than public markets currently think these companies are worth. And just to give an idea of what they do, they basically make headlights, exhausts, various bits and bobs that go in the car. So in the long term, they're, they're, they should really be you know, 
moving in tandem with the car cycle. So it's quite interesting that you know an investor that's usually regarded as quite savvy has come along and said, actually, we, we value this at a very different level to, to, to you guys. And you did see that have an effect on share prices on the morning. I mean, obviously, Fiat's went up quite a lot because it's selling something for a lot of money. But the, the other auto suppliers in the sector also rose by 3 or 4% on the day. Um, and you know it hasn't necessarily followed through. But, but there definitely is a perception that if you just look at the fundamental characteristics of these businesses, they, they throw off a lot of cash. And even if the electric you know, transition or the autonomous transition happens quicker than people expect over the next decade or so, you've still got quite a long time in which people are going to be buying things like exhaust and various powertrain systems and yeah. bits and bobs that, that would even be associated with the internal combustion engine. Yeah, it's not, that's not going away overnight. And in fact, the more they can, the car makers can make it efficient, the longer maybe it might stick around. I mean, it all, it all depends on you know, what the rules are going to be. Like the, the European rules on emissions are quite tough. The American ones are being uh, unwound slightly, perhaps. Um, but look, it, it may well be that KKR is overpaying, but also it will probably find co- costs to cut by meshing it with its other division. Uh, and it may well go out and buy some more. It, it did want to use this, what was, uh, what's it called, Calsonic? Calsonic Kansai. Uh, in in yeah. Japan, it was wanted to use that as a base for building a global operation. And now it's got two formerly um, captive, i.e. owned by um, car makers, formerly captive suppliers that it can now use to try and build out. So. It may have overpaid, but it's also shown that there's far more value than I think the public investors are giving a lot of credit for. And there's a kind of lingering question. I mean, you, you mentioned going out and buying other things. I mean, that is, that's a perennial idea in the car sector as well, right? You know, will there be global cooperation between mm. the actual the brands that we know? And that's something that you've written about recently. It was a, it was a long a dream of the, the old Fiat. Chief Executive Absolutely, yeah. Share, sharing costs. Don't let's not overspend on things that each of us needs to do that doesn't necessarily differentiate us. But at the moment, you know, there's a lot of talk about that, but um, we're not seeing a huge amount of extra action. Okay. Well, before everybody gets revved up about the auto sector, you make a convincing argument for to go buy uh, shares of all of these uh, auto parts and automakers. Easy now. <laughs> it, things are not universally sort of at an inflection point, possibly because there are a couple of companies out there that you're quite downbeat on, both of you, mm. I think. Mm. Um, do you want to sort of talk us through what's going on in some of the, you know, household names? Mm. That yeah. So, get, no, yeah, so no, we should say we're speaking before Daimler, which owns Mercedes-Benz, and Ford. We're speaking before they report their results. So That's this, true. Having said yeah. that, I'm not sure those results are going to change your views because your views so, go no. a little further into the future, don't they, Anthony? Yeah. 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 Go ahead. We've basically looked at the amount that they pay out as dividends, which is just a kind of you know reward you get as a shareholder of, of big companies, and it's it's noticeably a much higher proportion for them than it is for some of their peers. Think of like General Motors or BMW or Renault or someone like that. Which is, if you think about it, you know, a good thing in a way for an investor if you're being rewarded. But that's quite a, a short-term reward for something that if you can't really afford it, which we don't think they can, it doesn't, it's not covered by their cash flow is the kind of pointy-headed financial way of saying it. Um, essentially, they're having to dip into this big bucket of cash that they've got sitting there, which everyone expects at some point you have to spend more of that on electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. So it's quite a, it's quite a strange admission of defeat almost for them to be paying out more than their cash flow in, 
uh, to shareholders when they could actually be investing for the future, and it, it doesn't it doesn't really send the best message. Which yeah, I mean, to, to be I mean, to be clear, we're not saying that the dividends because they're paying dividends, they're going to get in a whole lot of trouble like maybe 10, 12 years ago yeah. when uh, Ford and General Motors uh, s uh, slashed and then stopped their dividends. That's not happening at all. Um, it's more about where the best place is to spend it. And I don't think this is going to get in a huge amount of trouble. I think even if there's uh, somewhat of a recession and car sales in the US say go down a bit more, the likes of Ford are going to be just fine because they've cut their cost base. But it is, as Liam was saying, it's about where that money goes. And yes, both of both Ford and Daimler have, along with others, committed uh, billions, if not tens of billions each, to um, electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. But it doesn't look good if you're sitting there dipping into your cash reserves to pay dividends out to shareholders. Um, now, look, the dividend, the dividends are a nice thing to have, and at Ford especially, the Ford family still owns a small amount of stock, although they, uh, they have control over 40% of the vote, but a small amount of stock, and the dividend is how they get paid uh, a decent amount of money. So they're not going to be very keen to cut it, and having done it 10 years ago they, or 12 years ago, they know it's a painful thing to do and an admission of defeat, so I think they might be a bit slower to do it because of that. But there's just no reason to keep it this high, and shareholders are basically saying, look, you're the worst performer out there already. We're worried, especially about um, uh, Ford's car sales in China, which are just abysmal, whereas everyone else is doing kind of okay. They're worried about Jim Hackett, the CEO's turnaround plan, which hasn't yet shown um, much progress. It's early days, but they also cancelled an investor day uh, a month or so ago because they wanted to just get on with it. So people are thinking, we, we need to see you doing something here. And maybe the dividend isn't, it isn't the first thing they cut to show that they're, they're taking things seriously. But, you know, it's, it's definitely out there and on investors' minds. Perfect. Thank you very much, Anthony and Liam, for talking us through what's going on in the auto sector. And we'll come back in a few months' time to check up on how your predictions are going. Great. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, Swaha. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Amy Donlan, Chris Thompson and Liam Proud, and extend our gratitude to producers Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Do check us out every day at breakingviews.com, subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes, and do come back for another edition next week. <laughs>